Father, we're, we're glad for these words and glad that these words are true, that we're not just singing uh, some hope, some dream, some uh, good wish, but we're singing the facts of the gospel, that Christ has lived, he has died, he has risen again, he's ascended into heaven to rule and reign from there, and our trust is in his blood. We have indeed been rescued through your great love toward us. So be with us now, Lord, as we come to your word. We'd be able to hear from you and be attentive to your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I invite you this morning to turn with me to two different sections of scripture. First of all, the book of First Peter. We're going to read just one verse from there, First Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 1. You'll find this on page 1014. And then uh, turn to Acts chapter 8 as well, on page 916. So just have your, have your fingers in those two places. Today is a very significant day in the life of our church. Not just because of all that's going on on this campus, although that gives us lots of cause to celebrate. Amazing to think about what the Lord does here week to week as people are introduced to Jesus for the first time and then as believers are taught and equipped as what it means to, to live a gospel life and live life in God's lap. There are great things happening here on our campus, but today is such a significant day in the life of our church because today we become parents again. Now understand, when I say we, I do not mean Rosie and I. <laughs> Rosie, tell me that we are not becoming parents again. Okay. By we, I mean our church. I mean our church. We become parents, this family, we become parents again as our newest church plant has its very first service today at four o'clock. A child is born to us this morning and our child is beautiful. Our new church plant is called Cross Community Church. It's located 20 minutes north of us in Rockville, Maryland. Our new church planter is called Ben Wickner. Many of you will have met him here on Sunday mornings or perhaps at the congregational retreat we took this summer. He describes himself as an ordinary misfit. Why? Because he doesn't really fit neatly into any one category. He was born in Korea and then adopted by Scandinavians who lived in Iowa. Um, we think he is the only Swedish Korean in the world. Right? Uh, from there, he went to college in the South before marrying an Irish girl from San Francisco. So, you know, what category does, does that fall into? In his ministry life, he started off at a, a small church on the West Coast before then serving at a mega church on the East Coast. He doesn't really fit in to any particular category, but... In our divided and polarizing age, a man like Ben Wickner is the perfect guy to cross boundaries, to cross barriers with the hope and love of Jesus Christ. A child is born to us today and we're excited to see what's going to happen through this new church. We're excited to see outcasts being welcomed, to see the broken being healed, to see marriages be saved, to see addicts be healed, to see children be loved, to see neighborhoods renewed and schools impacted and people far from God brought into a saving relationship with Jesus because that's what Jesus does. I'm excited about this. You picking up on that? It's a significant day in the life of our church. I invite you to pray for our new church plant. 
I pray that it would get off to a good start and the work there would flourish. I also invite you today, if you're able, to attend that first service. First service will be at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Directions and information are all in your flock notes. Uh, Come join us for that time of celebration, if you're able. On this then significant day in the life of our church, we also come to the fourth sermon in our series, Labeled. And it's appropriate because the label we read of today is a, a label that speaks to us about the very mission of the church. What a great thing to be reflecting on together as we launch this new church plant. In the series so far, we've been reflecting upon gospel identity by looking at the names that were given in the first few verses of First Peter. These gospel names that are intended to shape our self-understanding, gospel names that are intended to have a controlling influence on the kind of lives that we lead, gospel names that are intended to give us hope. So far, we've seen three names. First of all, week one, we saw this name, Beloved. As Peter writes, not as Simon the denier of Jesus Christ, but as Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. We're reminded of God's great love for you that isn't based upon anything you might do. He loves you just as you are and not as you should be. In him we're found as the beloved. The week after we saw that not just that but we're also a chosen people. That God has set his love upon us from, from eternity past. Safe and secure in the arms of our God. Next, last week though, the, the tone changed a little bit as we saw that these beloved and chosen ones also now live life as exiles. I, I may have the accent and I may have the kilt, but we are all resident aliens. This land is not our home. You may not have a green card, but your citizenship's in heaven. Exiles. This week we come to another name that really develops this idea and helps us understand what it means to live as exiles in this place. The name comes in verse 1 where we read, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion, to the dispersed ones, to the scattered ones. Dispersed and scattered where? In Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Scattered across those Roman provinces found in modern-day Turkey, the believers are exiled and scattered. They don't have one geographic location that they can call home. They're scattered across the earth. And of course, what's true of them is true of us. As we are exiles, exiles living away from our heavenly homeland, though sure that we will one day make it there. We find that we too are dispersed and scattered. Christians today are dispersed and scattered across the face of the earth. And we know that this morning, in fact this very moment, many of our brothers and sisters are being persecuted, are being mistreated, are being oppressed. We know that dispersed and scattered across the face of the earth, right now at this very moment, many Christians face hostility and intolerance and marginalization. We know at this very moment as Christians are dispersed and scattered across the face of the earth that many are isolated, vulnerable, and alone. But this week, did the tragic events in Oregon not remind you of your own status? Not remind you of your own status as this week believers 
were martyred. But American believers on American soil, reminding us that this world and even this nation is not our home. We're citizens of another land. We too are amongst the dispersed. How should we think about our status? How should we think about this dispersion? How should we live as dispersed exiles? Enter Acts chapter 8. Let's read verses 1 through 8 together. Stephen has just been stoned and we read, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. I want us to consider just for a few moments briefly this text and see four truths that are deeply encouraging to dispersed exiles. Four truths that should be of great encouragement to us as we seek to live lives as, as those dispersed exiles. As those believers who are part of this diaspora, having no central home of our own but scattered across the face of the globe in solidarity with our brothers and sisters worldwide and yet seeking to live in faithfulness until we may reside in the home in which we truly long. First truth I want to see from this text this morning is simply this, that God, God has you here for a reason. God has you here for a reason. The context, of course, of Acts chapter 8 is the growth of the early church. It begins in Acts chapter 1 where Christ, who has been crucified, buried, but risen, has risen again, now ascends to heaven. And this seedling church begins to form. And we read that there are only 120 members in this church. Imagine that. The church started with a body not even a tenth the size of our congregation. But then we roll into Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. Peter preaches a sermon and 3,000 people come to Christ. And from that point on, things just get out of control. Everywhere they go, people are coming to Christ. Everywhere they go, people are hearing the news of the gospel and being saved. Why? Because Jesus changes people. That's the business Jesus is in, and his business is good. He is on the move, gathering people to himself. And we see the explosion of this early church. And then persecution comes. Just as the church has begun to be established, just as the church has has started to build some momentum, persecution hits. Stephen, Acts chapter 7, one of the leaders of the early church, is, is put to death. He's executed, he's murdered, he's killed at the hands of men with stones. Killed for his profession of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And on that day, we read in verse 1 of chapter 8, a great persecution broke out against the church. Having killed one of the leaders, 
they then go after the church at large. And we read that Saul is one of the chief protagonists, not just approving of Stephen's death, but then going from house to house, seeking out believers, men and women who we can throw in jail. And not the kind of jail where you'd get three square meals and a roof over your head and a bathroom in the corner, but the kind of jail where you would, you would languish and, and die. Persecution has broken out in the life of this church and they find themselves vulnerable and isolated and alone. And yet in the midst of it, we see that God has them here for a reason. Why? Look at verse 4. See what it says? Now those who were scattered, from the same root word as, as dispersed in First Peter chapter 1, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. You see the flow here? They've sought to kill the church. They've sought to shrink the church. They've sought to persecute the church. And God has taken their efforts and turned it into mission. Back in Acts chapter 1, remember Jesus had said to them, you will be my witnesses. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I have a plan that this gospel will go from here into every nation. And now we see God's great plan to take persecution and turn it into mission. In other words, their best attempt to kill the church only served to fulfill the mission of the church. As believers were scattered, taking the gospel with them. They sought to shrink it. In effect, it grew. And of course, we believe that as those dispersed exiles today, God also has us here for a reason. That your place in, in time and space, that your location in your neighborhood, in your school, in your community, it, it's no accident. It, it, it's no it's just cosmic mistake or cosmic coincidence. No, we believe that God has scattered his people across the entire earth today that we might continue to be about the mission that he has given us. And what a thing for us to take seriously. What a thing for us to consider. Wow, I am the missionary God has placed in my location. Because you know, if I show up at your office tomorrow to share the gospel, that's going to be really weird. Who's this guy? How do you get through security, right? Um, that's not my mission field. That's your mission field. If I show up in your classroom, I'll probably get arrested. Right? That's not my mission field. That's your mission field. And so the Lord has us here. He has us in this time, in this place, for the work that he is doing in our midst. And we're seeing it happen. We're seeing people come to Christ. We're seeing people build up in their faith. We're seeing believers share. We're seeing God fulfill the mission that he gave his church. God put you here for a reason. You may be a dispersed exile, but you're here for a reason. (laughs) Second encouraging thing we see in our text is that we're here for a reason, and the work God has given us to do isn't rocket science. You've not been called to be a rocket scientist. Funnily enough, a guy on the way out said, I actually am a rocket scientist. (laughs) So, okay, maybe you were called to be that, but the rest of us haven't been called to rocket science. In fact, living out our faith living out the gospel in this time and place that the Lord has placed us is surprisingly simple. What do we see in our text? In our text we see we're called to a ministry of word and a ministry of deed amongst people who aren't like us. Let's see that in our text together. First of all, 
we see a ministry of word. It begins in verse 4 where we read that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And then in verse 5 we see that Philip proclaimed to them the Christ. In other words, part of our witness, part of our responsibility here uh, is, to, is to have a ministry of word. Now, I want you to understand that the terms that are used here aren't ex- exclusively used of, of a preaching ministry. Of the kind of preaching that I'm doing right now. Verse 4 literally says that they went into that region and they gospeled together. It means they, they lived out the gospel together and spoke of the gospel before the watching world. And so you're not meant to go into your neighborhood and into your school and into your office tomorrow and say, I have three points, they are alliterated, I will close with a poem. Um, <laughs> listen up, people, right? Um, I recommend against it. Um, no, that the idea is that as we live out our lives in relationship with Christ, we will have natural opportunity to speak of him to people. And so it's simple things. You ask how their weekend was. They ask how yours was. Yeah, you tell them about the concert you went to on Friday. That's a normal, natural thing to do. And you tell them about the time you spent with believers this morning. Because that's a normal, natural thing to do. As you build relationships with your neighbors and friends and, and, and colleagues... Uh, You share with them your struggles and how Christ is ministering to you in them. You share with them your joys and how Christ has given you hope. You just share the gospel together. You just live the gospel life, speaking his words to the watching world. First of all, not rocket science, a ministry of word. Secondly, not rocket science, but ministry of of deed. You see this in verses 6 and 7. The crowds pay attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs he did. Verse 7, For unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed, crying with a loud voice, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Now, listen, don't be too struck or impressed or intimidated by the miraculous nature of what's happening here. I don't want you to go into your neighborhood, your office, or your school and say, I have a three-point sermon, and I don't want you to go in there and try and cast out any demons, okay? Again, I recommend against it. That's not really the idea here. What's happening is this theme that we'll see again and again in Scripture, that the preaching of the word is always accompanied by the living out of deeds. Acts of mercy make the word seem credible. When we are a people who are living out a life of faith, living Christ-like lives the profession of our lips is more believable to people. And so it's not about healing the lame and casting out demons. It's about going into your neighborhood, your office, your school, and and looking to see how you can serve other people. Looking to see how you can extend kindness to them. Looking to see what burdens you can lift from them. Looking to see how you can sacrifice that that they might be blessed. And as you do that, as you live a Christ-like life alongside of them, the words of your lips become more believable. It's a simple, humble thing. It's not not rocket science. Ministry of word, a ministry of deed. And then thirdly, amongst people who aren't like you. Where do we get this from? We get this from verse 5 where we read that Philip goes where? To Samaria. Now understand, Philip is a Jew, and Samaritans and Jews do not get along. 
There is historic divisions between these two groups. Historic racial tension between these two groups. Historic animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. This is not the kind of group that Philip would ordinarily have felt comfortable with. It's not the kind of group that Philip would have found it easy and natural to become a part of that he might share the gospel through word and deed. And yet he goes to them because that's where the Lord had sent him. He goes to those who aren't like him that they too might receive the word of life. Now, I wonder this morning as a church, can we step on our own toes? Step on our own toes. Um, do you have many friends that aren't like you? Do you have many friends who don't look like you, who don't live like you? Do you have many friends who are outside of the Christian community? And I don't just mean people you know, I mean true, real, deep friends. Danger in the Christian church of becoming cloistered in this little bubble, whereby though we've been told to scatter, we've huddled, <laughs> and don't really have meaningful relationships with those outside of the faith community. The challenge put before us, it isn't rocket science, but it's to have a ministry of word and deed before the watching world. That's what we're called to. The third thing we see in our text that I find uh, really encouraging, yes, God has us here for a reason. He's not called us to rocket science. But as we begin to think of living out that life before people and as we start to kind of have the, the fear or anxiety that you wonder, you know, what would people think of me if I really started being more active in my faith? We get this third truth, that your, your worst enemy can become your best friend. Your worst enemy can become your best friend. Now, before you think this is like motivational, self-help, feel-good talk. Look at verse 1 with me. What do we read? Saul gives approval to the stoning of Stephen. His corpse is lying there and there's blood-splattered rocks sitting around and he says, this is good. And as soon as he'd done that, then he rushes out and goes from house to house. He's, he's eager, he's determined. He's not just passively watching the killing of Christians. He is now actively uh, involving himself in the persecution of Christians. And what happens to this Saul? <laughs> who is this guy? <laughs> this Saul is the Paul who writes half the New Testament. Why? Because God loves to knock people off their horses and introduce them to Jesus. Your worst enemy can become your best friend. You're worried what a neighbor will think. You're worried what a colleague will think. You're worried what a friend will think. You need be no more worried about them than Stephen was worried about Paul. There's someone in my life, and I need to be careful here, not part of this church, but the first time I met them, it was very clear that they didn't like me. Okay? The second time I met them, it was very clear that they didn't like anyone. <laughs> Third time I met them, it became clear to me that they don't like themselves. And so I thought, challenge accepted. <laughs> I am going to kill them with kindness. <laughs> Let me tell you what happened next. Nothing good. <laughs> Nothing good has yet happened in this scenario. I show up with enthusiasm and an idea and a creativity, and it's like, crash, burn, right? Um, I've had zero success. So what am I going to do? Am I going to give up? Believer in Jesus Christ, you never give up on anyone. 
because your worst enemy can become your best friend. And if you're struggling to believe that, can I just remind you of your own story? How God took what? An enemy and made him a friend. A friend who this morning will sit around his table. God's in the business of taking people who are opposed to him, taking people who are in rebellion against him, taking people who would even persecute and speak out against him and turn them into followers of Christ. So, I don't know who it is in your life that you think there's no hope for. The person that you've prayed for for years and years. Maybe, maybe it's that, that child who's, who's, who's wandered from the faith and, and just seems so hard now. Maybe it's that other relative or, or, or parent or or friend who just doesn't seem to really take the things of faith seriously. Maybe it's that boss or that colleague who's just really antagonistic about the gospel and will speak quite viciously about people of faith. Don't give up on them. (laughs) Don't give up on them. God didn't give up on us, and he can take our very worst enemies and make them our best friends. Fourth encouraging thing, And with this we close. God has us here for a reason. He hasn't called us to rocket science. He can take our very worst enemy and make him a best friend. And fourth, note that the end result of all of this is our own joy. The end result of all of this is our own joy. Where do I get this? Look at verse 8. What happens? So there was much joy in the city. I love this. Catch the sweep. Catch the pattern. There's persecution, and God uses it to fulfill his mission. And as the mission is fulfilled, the believers are joyful. In other words, their joy has come not in spite of persecution, but through it. Had they not suffered, they would not now be celebrating. And isn't that the gospel principle? Isn't that the story of the cross? That the most beautiful thing God ever did, he did through suffering. Not in spite of it, but but through it. That had Christ not died, had he not taken the punishment our sins deserve, had he not given us freedom and life in him, we would have no cause to celebrate either. And so we're called, Philippians will say, to participate in his suffering. And Acts promises us that our joy might be made complete. As you have uncertainty and hesitancy and fear about living a public faith, about dialoguing with your neighbors, friends, and colleagues, as you worry about what they'll think of you or whether you'll have the words to say, remember that should persecution come, it will only serve to increase your joy. It will only serve to increase your joy. God has orchestrated his grand design So that when we live in faithfulness to him, our joy will be multiplied, even if trouble comes. His name was Haristo Kulachev. That's probably not how you pronounce it. It's my best effort. Haristo Kulachev, and he was a pastor in Bulgaria, faithful pastor of a small church, boldly proclaimed the gospel week after week after week, to the point that he became a marked man by the communist government. And they came to him and said, look, no problem, no no drama, no big deal. Uh, We'll just appoint a pastor over your church, and you can be in the church, but just don't preach about this Jesus so much, and and everything will be fine. He said no. The moment they said no, he was arrested and thrown in prison. Again, not the kind of prison we might be 
I'm more familiar with here, but the kind of prison where he was, he was expected to die. He talks in detail about the, the horror of this experience, and it began very simply just with the hunger. On his very first day, they issued him with a uniform, and one of the fellow prisoners said to the guard, oh, these pants are a little tight, and the guard said, don't worry, they'll soon be loose. And so hunger came, and they starved. And he refused to compromise in exchange for his release, year after year after year. Eventually, he did get out of prison. And this is what he said. During my time there, we made Christ known in every way we could. Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions. And it turned out that we had a more fruitful ministry there than if we had been at the church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been free. It was worth it. Following Jesus always is. He was there for a reason. Simple ministry of word and deed before the world that watched. He saw some of his worst enemies become his best friends and the end result for him was joy. Joy. I pray that the gospel will do its work in our hearts to free us from fear, to free us from pride, to free us from insecurity, that we might live a life like Christo Kulichev. Beloved, chosen, exiled, dispersed. Let's pray. Father, indeed it is the the gospel that enables us to live the lives that you have called us to. Not simply because it motivates, though the gospel certainly does, but also because it empowers. As we reflect upon the gospel, we we find that our fears are um, ministered to. We find that our pride and our insecurity are our minister to. We find that we, we do become more confident to live the life that you have called us to. So Father, we pray for grace. Grace to be all that you have called and intended us to be. And we pray it in the perfect name of your Son. Amen.